Gamble on, fellas. Gamble on. <laughs> Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our Senior Analyst, Pulitzer Prize Finalist, John Brennan. And I believe you are not and have never been an HBO subscriber, John. Uh, you've noted that despite appearing in the documentary Soprano State, you've never seen an episode of The Sopranos. Uh, but for those who do have HBO, along with an interest in sports betting, a new series has been announced. How to Be a Bookie, starring comedian Sebastian Maniscalco, is coming next year. Uh, Maniscalco plays a California bookie contending with, among other things, the impending legalization of sports betting. John, do we need to call into the writer's room and let them know about the polling on Prop 26 and Prop 27 before they get too deep into this? Well, I think the most important thing is my observation about HBO. You know, uh, I never paid for it before this year, um, and I'm regretting that. But in my younger single days, I'd move from apartment to apartment every other year or so. And apparently I'm a friendly guy and I've always been very respectful and a little jealous of workers who are handy, uh, like a cable guy. So we'd have a nice chat while they did the cable installation. And three or four times in a row, each different installer would say, oh, it looks like you'll be getting HBO free for a year. They just click a little button, you know. <laughs> so uh, the pro tip that may still apply, who knows, okay. uh, treat work who visit your home like a human being, and you might be surprised how well it works out. Um, so true about The Sopranos show, I never really saw that, partly because the neighborhood I grew up in, those characters didn't seem exactly very exotic to me, okay? Like, okay. I've been there, done that. Uh, finally, oh yeah, California and the TV show. Um, it's a little weird the way the promo has gone, it's true, but it, sports betting will come to California eventually, so if they don't completely you know, root the show in a 2022-2023 context, I think they could be okay, because uh, this is going to happen and it's going to be interesting and california is the biggest state and so i mean if it's a good if it's a good show i don't think the referendum is going to ruin it okay yeah maybe maybe by like 2026 it'll start to feel realistic <laughs> to set this in california i guess but yeah you can maybe suspend disbelief on that front uh, i i will definitely be watching for what it's worth uh Menescalco cracks me up um i have no idea if he can act but Usually it works out with a comedian whose stage act has a lot of performance to it that they turn out to be good actors. And it's certainly rare the HBO series that isn't at least pretty good. Um, and I say this even as someone who does freelance work for Showtime. Um, th this certainly feels like fertile ground, the life of the bookie in the modern age. I just hope that the betting elements are more grounded in reality than was the case in Uncut Gems, that Adam Sandler sports betting movie. I hope there's a gambling consultant working on this show who can point out when he gets the scripts, uh, no, you aren't allowed to put which team will win the opening tip into your six-leg NBA parlay, which is uh, the fatal flaw of Uncut Gems. Yeah, I think, though, that, you know, I don't really blame him that movie because how many people gamble anyway? How many people bet on basketball? How many people do prop bets? How many people do in-game bet? I mean, the, the universe keeps shrinking to the point where if you're trying to get a general audience, the number of people are going to know, hey, that's not right. You know, I mean, uh, geez, Shoeless Joe Jackson, left-handed, right-handed, feel the dreams. And, <laughs> right. you know, the, the proper response was like, wait a minute. So these are ghosts who come out in a cornfield and play baseball, you know, 50 years after they're dead. You're good with that. That's that's not a problem. But whether he's left-handed or right-handed, that's a that's a bridge you won't cross. I mean, come on, it's silly. So I think I I don't I think they probably will cut corners on on those kind of wagers, and I think most people aren't going to care. Yeah, well, I guess I'm not most people, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so be it. The, the show is not catered to me, I suppose. Uh, but uh, I will be keeping a close eye and pointing out every uh, sports gambling industry error that they make. All right. Thank you to all of our listeners out there who could surely do the same and point out all the errors. Thank you for joining us for episode number 212 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 211 episodes, they're all available on our new podcasting host site, Megaphone, as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all other other podcast apps and be sure to check us out on our forthcoming premium cable series how to be a sports gambling industry podcaster 
I think that'll be about one episode. But uh, <laughs> uh, So coming up a little later in the show, we're going to be joined by our colleague, Mark Saxon. He now covers the gambling industry like we do, but he's best known to most for his years covering Major League Baseball. So with the playoffs starting Friday, we're going to ask Mark whether to expect a chalky postseason, uh, whether earning a buy is necessarily a good thing, uh, and who he favors when his Cardinals face Eric's Phillies. But first, it's been yet another busy week in the world of gambling. So let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. We're only covering two news items this week instead of our typical three because we have two particularly meaty items to sink our teeth into. Uh, First, a fascinating new legal filing that you wrote about, John, for U.S. Bets. Last Wednesday, a New York resident sued BetMGM in New Jersey Superior Court over alleged online casino issues. And that New Yorker, Sam Antar, happens to be the nephew of Crazy Eddie Antar, whose prices, for those old enough to remember, were insane. Uh, Sam Antar alleges that when playing online blackjack and other games, he would frequently get disconnected, supposedly when he had a favorable hand, and when he would complain to BetMGM, they would pacify him by sending him site credit rather than actual cash that he could immediately withdraw. For what it's worth, BetMGM declined comment to the Wall Street Journal, and the New Jersey DGE declined comment to U.S. Bets. Importantly, Antar describes himself in the lawsuit as, quote, a compulsive and vulnerable gambler, and he estimates he gambled at least $29 million over the nine months in question from 2019 to 2020. Antar claims BetMGM knew he'd participated in New Jersey's voluntary gambling self-exclusion program and that the disconnections occurred, quote, thousands of times. Uh, One other note, Antar has a criminal history sentenced in 2013 for a fraudulent investment scheme and pleading guilty in 2019 to second degree theft by deception. I have some experience with the disconnecting issue, which I'll get into shortly. But first, John, your thoughts on this lawsuit and just how bad it is for BetMGM if the operator is guilty of what's being alleged. Yeah, I mean, there's so much to unravel here, as you suggested. Um, First, yes, you have to consider the character of the witness in the box of your jury. And uh, this isn't that, but there's no way to just blindly accept these allegations. But to me, what's bad for MGM is how small a percentage of this has to be true to be a major problem. Mm. And the New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement, they would not take kindly to this at all. I just wrote a piece on Wednesday about a recent podcast with DGE director David Rebuck that was focused specifically on how operators can better spot problem gamblers and inform them of possible alternatives, meaning maybe think before your next bet. Now, Rebuck wants to be a pioneer once again on this front, and this uh, possible fiasco would be the antithesis of that. Mm. So the unusual part for me, after all the lawsuits I've covered over the years, is that even 90% false would be a bad look for BetMGM. Yeah, that's a really important point that I hadn't really thought about. Uh, To me, there are two main parts of this story worth exploring, Uh, the disconnection issue and the problem gambling aspect and then BetMGM, if the suit is to be believed, operating completely irresponsibly on that front. Um, so first, the, the disconnection stuff. As I said, I've experienced issues like this. Um, I still experience them sometimes. It's definitely a problem with online casino gaming. I have this one slots game that I play sometimes, and I will be mid-spin, and it will suddenly tell me connection lost or something to that effect. And sometimes it's during a sequence of spins where I've already banked some money. But in every instance, except for one, which I'll mention in a sec, I've found that if I quit the game or close the app and log back in, whenever I do restart, it picks up right where it left off. Uh, it's It's not like online poker where you're playing against other humans in real time. And so a disconnect can really cost you because the game has to continue on while your hand is folded. But I did have one time a few years ago where I was in the middle of a winning spin and it didn't resume where it left off. So I sent a message to customer support and they were able to look up the hand history and confirm that, yes, there was this winning spin not reflected in my account and they put the money in my account. And that Mm. was that. So basically what I'm saying is that the disconnect issue Antar recounts is entirely believable to me. Um, But. And I should note that my play has not come on BetMGM. I have no experience on that site. But the idea that the winnings were wiped out does not line up with my experience. He also claims that he would sometimes have tens of thousands of dollars in his account and then disconnect and the balance would be zero when he logged back in. 
I don't know. That sounds near impossible. Uh, it's one thing for the current hand to get erased, but for your account to zero out and then for you to just say, okay, give me some freebies and I won't report it to the DGE. I'm not passing definitive judgment on whether he's telling the truth or not. I, I'm just saying it, it sounds fishy to me. So uh, yeah, I, I, I do want to get into my thoughts on BetMGM's alleged handling of it as well, but uh, I'm not sure if you want to weigh in first on, on this stuff, John, with, with the, the disconnection issues. Well, yeah, I don't know anything about that. I've obviously never played online casino gaming to the surprise of nobody, but right. um, you know, I think the amount, is, is really important to me. He mm. says he gambled at least 29 million in seven months. Okay. So suppose they can only establish that he gambled at least 10 million and he might've gambled more, but we're only sure of 10 million, 10 million. I mean, it's interesting that, you know, when Reebok was talking last week about um, by the end of this calendar year, uh, all of the uh, mobile sports betting and online casino operators in New Jersey will have to have certain standards in place where basically if you are suddenly betting a lot more than you used to, or you're making new deposits much more often than before, they will have a flag so that you get sent information about maybe take a deep breath here, maybe mm -hmm. maybe pause. Are you sure you're okay? But he, he went out of his way to point out they're not mandating credit checks so they're not going to say well wait a minute you're you're in debt you know with uh, your your credit score is too low we're not going to let you put money in here they're not doing that but i mean who needs to gamble 29 million i mean a billionaire maybe does but right. how many of those are there i, I don't know I, like i said i if you're letting anybody bet more than six figures in a year boy that's a lot of money it's well it's a with online casino, sort of the handle figure, the amount that you've bet is a little misleading in okay. that, like, let's say I'm sitting down at a casino blackjack table and playing $100 a hand. Mm -hmm. I'm, te you know, I can gamble $10,000 in two hours or something like mm -hmm. that. Um, but, you know, I'm really realistically only going to finish up or down 500 or something yeah, like that, yeah. you know. So the amount that you gamble, especially online where it can happen quickly, um, it's still it's 29 million is still a ridiculous amount, but I, but I can see how you can get there without it necessarily meaning you're, you know, betting a million bucks at a time. Um, but yeah, so the, the biggest start part of this story for the industry is all the RG related stuff. The, this guy being an admitted problem gambler and having self-excluded in the past and BetMGM allegedly handling this the way they did, feeding him with site credit, essentially bribing him not to report them to the DGE. On the one hand, it's so beyond the pale that I have trouble believing this was how it was handled in a regulated environment. On the other hand, if they did do what he says, and as you point, even if they did 10% of what he says, they probably deserve to lose their license or, or something like that. You know, that, that is a massive if that I need to point out the, uh, that it's these are just allegations. But what's alleged it goes against every principle of running a responsible and regulated gambling operation. Basically, he's saying BetMGM's decision makers saw his situation and said, this guy has a gambling problem. He'll keep losing money to us nonstop. So let's just keep squeezing it out of him by any means necessary. It's extremely disturbing. Um, I have no idea what fraction of this they might actually be guilty of, but the allegation alone has to serve as a wake-up call to regulators because if this sort of thing is happening, it can bring down the whole in industry. You know, maybe maybe not the sports betting side of it, but you know, hopes for online casino expansion. I feel like that stops if BetMGM is found guilty of taking advantage of a gambling addict. Yeah, yeah not to uh, mention I, his his allegation that they're possibly rigging their games to disconnect him when he has a strong hand. I don't. He doesn't quite spell that out, but it's certainly insinuated. Yeah, I, I think what sort of helps is that. The claims are so aggressive that there is claims of so much evidence that has been saved, screenshots and mm -hmm. and like uh, there was audio of a phone call or something like like there's so much claim that if none of that you know proves either true or relevant, then maybe the whole thing is nonsense, and right. then that's good to know. Whereas again, if even some of it is clearly true. This is a big problem. So, uh, yeah, definitely worth everybody. We'll keep our minds uh, open on this and see what happens because the extremes, as you say, are are enormous. And given how slowly online casino was rolled out in the U.S., if this thing is even half the scandal it could be, yeah. uh, 
you're going to have a lot of lawmakers saying, wait a minute, you know, they're, they're fine with sports betting, but they already were shaky with online casino. And now they're like, well, look at this, you know, and, and frankly, the, the, the size of the brand here at MGM is also relevant. You know, if it was a sort of a seeming fly-by-night company ever heard of, well, they go out of business, they never get approved. Somebody goes bankrupt and you move on and say, well, that's why you need the big guys because they're the ones who are responsible. If a big guy makes a mistake, it really hurts the industry. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this thing is so fascinating that, you know, the plaintiff could be totally anonymous and I would still be just as drawn in. And so then you just, the, the icing on the cake of the crazy, crazy Eddie angle. It's just like one of those bizarre little twists that you didn't need that. It's fascinating without it, but that just makes it that much better. Yeah. Well, imagine if like the guy who created the KARS cars for kids dad was uh, involved <laughs> in a gambling, potential gambling scandal. Uh, you know, that would uh, draw some attention too. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 apologize to anyone who now has that jingle in their head just by you bringing it up yeah i'm normally against the death penalty but you know there (laughs) are a few exceptions and i i I think i'd have to uh, consider that one here okay all right uh for our second story we go from a conflict that you just wrote about john to one that i wrote about uh the bizarre live streamed cash game poker hand that won't stop trending on Twitter as everyone debates whether they think amateur player Robbie Jade Lou cheated to win a pot against pro Garrett Adelstein. Uh, This was last Thursday night on a show called Hustler Casino Live, where the hands air on delay, but there are people in a control room seeing the cards in real time, much like with the Mike Postle cheating scandal from 2019. Without going step-by-step through the whole hand, I'll skip straight to the turn where Adelstein had an open-ended straight flush draw with seven, eight of clubs on a board with both the 10 and nine of clubs and two other less significant cards while Lou had Jack four off suit, no hand, no draw, but technically was in the lead with Jack high against eight high Adelstein bet. She raised, he re-raised all in. And after thinking a little while, and talking about how she thought he was bluffing, she called for another $108,000. Her hand held up on the river, and when Adelstein saw her cards, he changed from smiling to looking confused and angry. To him, something didn't smell right, that she would call with a hand that wasn't even strong enough to beat most bluffs. Words were exchanged. Lou tried to explain her read and why she played the hand like she did. And when they left the table... She gave him back all the money he lost in the pot, which some took as a sign of guilt and others took as a sign that she just wanted to avoid conflict. The debate has raged online ever since. Everyone has a theory. Some have made it about gender and alongside simultaneous chess cheating scandals and fishing cheating scandals. uh, This one, which might not even be a cheating scandal, seems to have the most legs. John, any leaning on whether you think she was somehow cheating and any other thoughts on the whole conversation surrounding this hand? Yeah, I'll, I'll confess. I fell down the rabbit hole of comments on Twitter about <laughs> yep. the story. Uh, it, it featured so many prominent names and I was astounded to see such a virtual 50 50 split, especially because both sides seem so sure of themselves. I'm thinking <laughs> like, I don't know enough about this. I mean, it is a little weird and the, and why'd she give the money back? Like I, I'm pretty open to like somebody explain it to me and I got, I thought really plausible explanations across the board. I'm thinking, oh, I'm getting nowhere with this. So, and I, I again, I, I'm not confident of the answer, but, and I'm not generally one to jump to a gender conclusion, frankly, but in this case, I'm a little bit open to it. So I'd like to hear your more knowledgeable angle on all of this. Okay. Well, uh, I'll sort of save the gender part, I guess, for last. I do have some thoughts on that, but um, I thought Daniel Negreanu, uh, former Gamble On guest, yeah. maybe two-time guest even, I think, yes. um, on his podcast and on Twitter, uh, laid out a pretty strong case for why he leans toward believing she wasn't cheating. But he was also very careful to say nobody ought to feel too sure on either side of the issue. But as he explained it, there was nothing she did that didn't line up reasonably well with just an inexperienced player crumbling for a moment under the pressure and making a bad play and then getting flustered, trying to justify and explain it. Um, But make no mistake, it was such an unjustifiable call that I 100% get Adelstein's reaction, the way he got deadly serious, thinking she must have cheated and seen his cards because a technically sound player will fold to his all in there a thousand times out of a thousand. If she's a good experienced player, she can make a great read that, that, that he's a bully and he's aggressive. And I think he's bluffing here. And then when he goes all in, 
she still has to consider that, well, maybe he's bluffing with ace high or king high or queen high. And those hands all have me in huge trouble. And so you find a fold. Um, you, you say out loud, maybe, ah, I think you're bluffing, but I can't even beat half of your bluffs. And, and so you fold it, you know, unless you're an inexperienced player who is all feel, no math, which could well be the case with her. Um, the debate over what it means that she gave the money back is just fascinating. Um, I compared it in my article to the famous Princess Bride scene with the Iocane powder. You wouldn't poison my cup because that would be too obvious, but you wouldn't poison your own cup because you would know that I would know yada, yada, yada. Um, if she cheated, she wouldn't give the money back because then what was the point of cheating? And it admits guilt. But if she didn't cheat, she wouldn't give the money back because she wanted fair and square. And what's the point of playing poker if you're not going to keep your winnings? The explanation that makes the most sense to me is just, you know, she's playing to have fun. She's not looking for conflict. She was finding this to be very not fun uh, and it was making her uncomfortable. So she decides I'll just give him his money back and this whole thing will go away, which of course it turns out giving his money back (laughs) did not make it go away. Um, So, yeah. So, so getting around now to the gender element, I actually think it's a a red herring uh, in this one. Um, Most of the people pointing out gender on Twitter were people who don't necessarily understand poker and, and took the position on Twitter that, what a misogynist. He, he lost to a woman, so he accuses her of cheating. Mm. The actual female poker pros mostly came to Adelstein's defense. Mm. Um, and I, if it had been a man who made the same play that, that Lou did, I am totally certain Adelstein would have had the same reaction. But it's just like, you know, I guess the question is, which is more insulting to say this woman cheated me or this woman made a terrible poker play? Because it has to be one or the other. And, and I think either could be interpreted as sexist. So there, there's kind of no winning with the people who are looking for a gender conflict here. Well, you know, I didn't think of the misogynist angle at all. I, I'm not, well, I don't blame him at all. Like you say, for his reaction. I don't think that's being a bully. I don't think that's, I, I don't, I didn't have that issue at all. I'm just mm-hmm. thinking on her end. The question is it's overwhelming. Obviously you're getting, uh, you know, kind of challenged and, and other people are commenting and, and you realize that it does look weird and it's just, it seems overwhelming. I, I can possibly imagine uh, her just deciding, you know what? I don't, right. I don't want to be in this thing anymore at all. It's not mm-hmm. even worth it. So if I give the money back, it goes away. As you say, that did not exactly work in her favor, but that's what I'm thinking of. So it's more on, on, on her end. I'm not, I, I don't think you have to be thinking that way. And then also deciding that's because this guy's a misogynist. I think, I think they can be split. Right. Okay. So I wasn't quite uh, understanding what, what yeah. you were looking at. So it's more just like sort of some gender stereotypes of a man would be more stubborn in this situation in theory, whereas a woman might be quicker to concede that I just don't want to get into this mess and, and deal with, deal with everything coming my way. And so I'll give him the money back that. that well, no, possibly... that, but that, that is not at all like all women are weaker. That's like at least 50% is women are smarter. Right. I mean, <laughs> right. men are or, more or stubborn. Men, men are more stubborn. stubborn right? I mean, there are times when, you know, you hang in there against all odds and somehow you, you make it and you succeed and you save somebody. What I like that can be great. Stubbornness might be wonderful. And sometimes it's really stupid. So if, if we do think that some people are more or less likely to be stubborn, that, that's not a value judgment in my mind of that. That's good or that's bad. That's just different. Right. And, you know, this is reminding me, I'm going, this is going to sound like a gratuitous plug for, for my book, The Moneymaker Effect, and it partially is, but it's also something that uh, somewhat disgraced former poker pro Howard Letterer told me for the book about playing in the World Series and watching players every year get as far as they could get to a certain point and then just crumble under the pressure. And yeah. actually, you could see some of them sometimes just wanting to be eliminated and wanting it to be over with because they couldn't deal with the, the intensity of it and the pressure anymore um, that I, I, there could be some of that here as well, you know, both in terms of she played the hand poorly uh, at least mathematically uh, because of the pressure, but also that uh, whether she cheated or didn't, 
that giving the money back was her just caving to the pressure and and just not wanting to this to to go any deeper and just if I give him his money back this will all be over with and I can move on with my life. Yeah, I mean, it, as as you said, it was uh, it, it's a little bit understandable, but a little bit naive. Well, it's a lot naive because uh, there's no way that that was going to make people happy. Yeah. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. Our podcast timing has lined up perfectly as we record and post on Thursday morning and Wednesday marked the end of the Major League Baseball season and Friday marks the start of the playoffs. So we know who's in, who's out, who's matched up with whom and what all the odds are. And as it so happens, my team, the Phillies, are in, John's team, the Mets, are in, and our guest is a St. Louis Cardinals fan. His team is in, too. We welcome now for his second appearance on the pod, veteran baseball writer and our colleague at Sports Handle and U.S. Bets, Mark Saxon. Mark, welcome back to Gamble On. Oh, well, gentlemen, it's so nice to be back after a little bit of a hiatus. I'm glad uh, the timing's perfect. I'm really you know, it, the baseball playoffs are always a blast. And, you know, this one just I think it has a lot of fun matchups. I kind of like the new wild card format. So I'm looking forward to breaking it all down with you uh, fine fellows. Great. Well, perfect lead in by mentioning the new playoff format, because I'm curious for your big picture thoughts on that. Um, in years past, the MLB playoffs have been something of a crapshoot, you know, not not quite on the level of the NHL playoffs, but getting close, maybe. Uh, but this year, the top two seeds in each league would seem to have a real advantage. So do you expect a chalky World Series pairing, you know, Dodgers or maybe Braves versus Astros or maybe Yankees? Um, and, and just overall, which team's World Series odds seem to you to have the most value? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question. It, it will be a little bit more chalky. I think that buy is just enormous for those teams. Um and even the wild card round will probably be slightly more chalky just because you've got three, um, you know, three straight games in one city. There's no travel day. They don't move venues. Um, is it a big advantage? No. Uh, major League Baseball has the smallest home field advantage of any of the major sports in the history of the league. Home teams have won 54 percent of the game. So there okay. you have it. It's a four percent edge. Not a big deal. Um but on the other hand, you know, I would look at some teams that maybe have to travel two, three time zones. That can be a little bit hard to play those games. That might matter a little bit there. Um, but yeah, it's going to be a huge advantage for those teams that were able to get that by. And the New York Mets, sadly, are not one of them. I know neither of you guys are <laughs> Mets fans, but that was quite yeah. tragic the way that went <laughs> oh john he's he's twisting the knife already we've barely right. even started but before right. i before i let john uh, address that I, I i did i did ask just in terms of the the odds whether there's a team that, that's jumping out at you as right. oh you know i kind of like the, the value there possibly is there one that's standing out at you at, at this point well if we're talking about winning the world series yeah i would say you know i i haven't i have not looked at the world series odds i was more kind of fixated on these series the team that I think easily has the roster to win the World Series and might be sort of, it'll probably be slotted in that third or fourth choice and I think might be good value is the Toronto Blue Jays. Hmm. They've been totally erratic all year, but if you look at the talent on that roster, um, they could literally match up pitcher for pitcher in every series and nobody, if that offense gets clicking, it's as good as any offense. Now it did it all year. What you have is a lot of great hitters who didn't have great years. I would rather have the great hitters in the postseason who maybe didn't have the numbers in the regular season because it all sort of resets rather than having a, a team that overachieved in the postseason. So I think the blue Jays, if you're looking at that long-term, you know, world series pick, I would look at them closely. Hmm. Well, you'll, you'll be happy to know. I just called up uh, one, one sports book here as an example. I'm sure the odds vary a little bit, but uh, at DraftKings, at least they're sixth among the 12 teams at 13 to one to win the world series. So that, that I sounds like value to you. Okay. Yeah, I think so. All right. Uh, yeah. Mark, you mentioned that buy, and it's interesting teams have almost a week off and, uh, yeah, you, you do set your rotation nicely. If you got any banged up hitters, uh, maybe guys over 30, that's nice. They can rest up, but that's a lot of time off. That's longer than the all-star break. That's longer than anything these guys ever do. And also three of these four teams have 
pretty much had nothing to play for in the final month. So you're talking a long time between a competitive pressure game for those teams compared to say what the Mets and Braves just went through uh, and frankly, the Phillies as well. And so, um, and the Padres uh, that for that matter. So, I mean, you got teams that are kind of, you know, finally honed, although they have to play an extra round and you've got these teams with a week off. I mean, uh, a, do you really think, I mean, obviously skipping around is great, but is it as big advantage as we think? And what are the odds if three of those four teams with buys lose uh, in the, uh, the DS series, uh, division series? What do you think that are people going to panic and say, we got to get rid of this format after all? Or <laughs> Probably. I mean, people panic over everything nowadays. <laughs> but um, in terms of, um, you know, the, the layoff, we've debated, debated that for so long. You know, <clears throat> when is the ideal time to clinch? I think generally the data shows that it's much, much better to have more time to set up everything. Um, the most extreme advantage, you know, example I can think of there was the 2005 Chicago White Sox. If you think back, it wasn't a great team overall, but they were in a terrible division that year and they clinched with like, I don't know, weeks left in the season. They rested their pitchers and then the postseason started and suddenly, you know, Jose Contreras is throwing 99 and um, Burley's incredible. And, you know, their pitching was just off the charts that year and it carried into a World Series with not a very good team. So I would say generally you want to you want to, you know, if you do it in, in an intelligent way, you're much better off resting your pitching and having all those guys ready to just pump, you know, very high velocity stuff in there because, We've seen the postseason. It's basically all the trends in baseball that we've seen over the years, even more intense. So you're going to see probably, you know, home runs are more important. Strikeouts are crucial. Um, teams aren't going to get the walks that they normally do. So those are really the factors we're going to see, I think, in play here. Yeah, I'm curious, though. I remember when the NCAA a number of years ago uh, in, in March Madness, they went to the, you know, we've got four teams left uh, on the bubble. Let's just let them play each other, be an 11 or 12 seed. You know, none of them are going anywhere anyway, but at least why we pick them, they can pick themselves. Well, all of a sudden, the first year, I think, out of the gate, a team made the final eight. I think it was the following year, a team made the final four, because these are teams that were battle tested. They had to fight like hell just to get as far as they did. They had to fight their way through an extra game. And so then you got these these uh, these teams on a real roll. And they're just steamrolling teams that had it easy and were coasting, you know, for several weeks. And uh, I'm really curious uh, to see if that happens. It, it would not surprise me at all if the, uh, the teams with the time off laid an egg a bit here. Interesting. Yeah, I would say basketball maybe is a little mo more of a momentum sport game to game. The mm -hmm. old, uh, you know, the old saw about baseball, momentum's only as good as the next day's starting yeah. pitcher. Right. But um, it certainly could be a factor if, it, if, it, if that happens and all the one seeds and two seeds <laughs> lose. Yeah, you'll, those are the big markets, right? I mean, those are the big That's cities true. in the U.S. You're going to hear a lot of grumbling. Yeah. And uh, as it so happens, the three of us are all rooting for wildcard teams. So uh, I, I kind of like your potential scenario, John, at least in, in theory, it'd be nice. So I have to dive in with you, Mark, on this Phillies versus card series. Yeah. Um, you were telling me before the matchup was even locked in earlier this week, it was looking likely that you found this pairing fascinating and, and mm -hmm. to be the toughest call for you of the wildcard round. So what is, is it about this matchup that, that's so interesting to you? There's two that are sort of toss-ups to me. There's this series, and then there's the Cleveland-Tampa series. Mm -hmm. I just personally think the Cleveland-Tampa series is, is not going to be as high level of baseball. I don't think those teams are particularly strong. They're both great on the run prevention side. They don't have good offenses, either one. They're both a little bit banged up, um, not entirely healthy going into this series. You know, they're, they're, th that series is sort of the small market smart teams, you know, the cheap small teams. I, but the other one is this Cardinals Philly series. And the reason I like it, I think they're really strong teams that have, you know, one maybe fatal flaw. And so you've got two very good offenses. Is it a wash? I would say the Cardinals, you know, statistically are a, a, a tick ahead on the power, on the on base. Um, but really where the flaws are, I think with the Phillies, yes, the bullpen is better, but you still, I think, wonder what it's going to look like if they have to kind of bridge that gap, you know, from Wheeler and Nola to the closer. The closer is very good, but the guys in between there, I, I think you as a Philly fan are probably going to get a little nervous in the sixth <laughs> yeah. or seventh. For the Cardinals, it's really, 
they don't have top of the rotation intimidation at all. Where where there's no Scherzer to Grom, forget about that. You're talking about maybe starting Jose Quintana or Miles Michaelis in Game One. What they have is a a rotation full of good number two starters, maybe even number three starters. So that works in the regular season. We'll see how it works in the postseason. The, the, the decider for me here, I, I, I slightly favor the Cardinals, and it's because they're so much better defensively than the Phillies are. Mm-hmm. It's very easy to imagine a scenario where somebody makes a key mistake in a game on the Phillies side, whether that's Kyle Schwarber, Alec Bohm, somebody who's maybe a subpar fielder, whereas the Cardinals, really, there's no weakness. You've got you know, a team returning four gold glovers from last year. You've got Nolan Arenado and Paul Goldschmidt on the quarters, Yadier Molina. It's a very good defensive team. And I think because it's such a marginal kind of series, I would sort of lean toward that as the decider. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, the the Phillies tried to address that with uh, Brandon Marsh picking him up, and I think that helps the outfield, but it's still a, a below average defensive team that almost became defined this season by that Alec Bohm three error inning to start the season where he was cursing as he said, I hate this place as he walked off the field and then obviously bounced back uh, as the season went along. But uh, I'm not sure who I think is actually going to win, but obviously uh, I'm rooting for one side and you're rooting for the other. So I feel like we need to, we need to have some fun and play some sort of a, a, a side bet on it. Uh, I don't know that straight money really makes uh, makes much sense. Uh, you know, uh, we're, we're we're co-workers probably shouldn't be uh, owing each other uh, money on this. But I'm, tr- I'm trying to think of something, something fun. I don't know if you have uh, any, any ideas about the only thing that's occurring to me that uh, I've seen some people do is the like Twitter takeover that the the winner gets to write a tweet that the loser has to tweet out as if it's their own, basically praising the other team. And you can't, you can't like asterisk, by the way, I lost a bet or whatever. You have to like post it as if it's your own. I don't know how you feel about that. Or do you have any other ideas? No, I love that one. The only one that I was thinking of is, uh, you know, we are a, a, gam- a sports gambling uh, company. So we do have to sort of factor in the odds here. So, I was thinking, you know, next time I see you, I'll buy you 1.3 beers win, <laughs> and you only have to buy me one. But I like your idea better. So, like, you could say that if the Phillies win, you're going to tweet from my account the most glowing, you know. Extra- right. Okay. Right. Like you, would, you would tweet out. And as far as anyone knows who doesn't listen to this podcast, they'd think it's in your own words saying that the Phillies are the greatest team you've ever come up against or ever seen in baseball or something, something to that effect. Uh, okay. Um, all right. So uh, we are uh, over that. Zoom shaking hands. Uh, the the prop bet is in place. All right. Okay. It, it, it's done. <laughs> John, you're the witness. <laughs> right. I'm a witness, right? Yeah. So Mark, I, I want to talk about, you know, uh, sizing up postseason series and I'll tell you I've, I've felt this way for many years not just because the Mets now have DeGrom and Scherzer but I've always yeah. I've always am completely focused on starting rotations and like you mentioned the Cardinals and that that's maybe an issue with them uh, and mm-hmm. I, I kind of think you know well if you have the better one two three starters you're going to win and you know you mentioned um, defense uh, the Cardinals which is really important and something I tend to discount bullpens obviously uh, you mentioned home field is probably not the big a deal but maybe uh, in this era having more power is more important obviously than probably than speed. But so like, you know what, if I'm just focused on starting pitching pretty much on who I'm going to bet on in a series, you know, what, what, is there any one factor that you think is as important as that, or is that the number one? Well, it really depends for me. Like if, if we're going to zero in on that Met series, the fact that they have those two guys is absolutely for me, like the prism to look at that, that series through, because they also have a great closer. So you're talking about two games. You know that, I mean, even on a bad day, Scherzer is going to give you five and give up maybe three runs. He's going to give you a chance, right? Um, and DeGrom is the same. He's just too hard to hit. It's just hard to see them knocking him out early. So the bridge that the Mets have to come up with to Edwin Diaz is just not as great as what most people. Now, I will say this. I don't think it's absolutely necessary to have a dominant starting rotation. And here's why, especially in this wild card round, you're condensing your team. You've got three straight games. So your fourth and fifth starters now go into your bullpen, right? You only need three starting pitchers. So if you have to bridge the sixth, seventh inning, let's say the Phillies, 
you don't maybe have to use the guys you don't rely on. You can use a guy who has better stuff, who's maybe your fourth starter. You're condensing the whole pitching staff. So especially in that game three, and here's another thing to keep in mind, keep an eye on the uh, over-under totals in those third games because teams are going to have Johnny Holstaff available. If, let's say, the third starter, whoever, you know, whether that's, you know, um, for the Cardinals, Adam Wainwright or someone, let's say you're not real positive that they're going to go deep. The minute that guy gets in trouble, he's out. And they've got another starter in the game. So you're going to have tremendous number of pitching changes. You're going to have a lot of talent available for you in that third game. So I think, I think it can be a huge asset starting pitching, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Uh, one more thing on starting pitching uh, that Mets are talking about. I think this is going to be something every team considers. Uh, so Scherzer will pitch game one. And there's some talk that if the Mets win, they, they use Bassett, Chris Bassett in game two with the idea that if they sweep, then they have the Grom for game one of the next next round. Uh, and if if Bassett loses, they still have the Grom to try and win it anyway, rather than using up the Grom no matter what, when maybe you didn't need to, because Bassett could win the game instead. And you think a lot, I mean, I, it depends a little bit on the difference between one, two, three, and four, obviously. But uh, do you think that's something teams are going to tend to look at? Uh, or the starting pitchers really need more time to know, hey, am I pitching tomorrow or not? You don't, you don't have, no, have no idea. You know, a lot of veteran starting pitchers probably are not going to be too thrilled with that, uh, in, that indecisiveness. Yeah, I think that's a terrible idea. I think teams <laughs> might kick it around, like with the analytics departments of their front. Reminds me of uh, three years ago, the Cardinals were in Atlanta. Jack Flaherty on the mound. They went up like 10 nothing in the first inning. And in the, I talked to John Mosaic, the president of baseball operations. I said, did it ever occur to you to pull Flaherty, mm. you know, after one inning and use him in game one of the NLCS? And he said, there was talk, you know, in, the, in, the, in their suite in Atlanta. He said, but he put the kibosh on it. You have to win that game. You're talking about a three-game series. If you lose game two because you're playing games, you're literally, as a front office, taking away your team's chances to win that game. Absolutely not. I think you go with those two guys right off the bat and then, you know, let the chips fall as they may. Look, you're already going to have at least two, three days of rest for Scherzer. If he goes game two in a seven-game series, I, I don't think that's a big deal. All right. Fascinating. This is going to be such a fun playoffs to watch unfold. Uh, I, I love the new format, at least in theory, until my team gets bounced in two games or something. <laughs> but uh, for, for now, I'm really looking forward to it. It was great talking to you about it all, Mark. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. And of course, uh, uh, worst of luck to your Cardinals. <laughs> oh, my goodness. And also, we should mention for people like we're going to have a lot of content uh, playoff yes. preview stuff on all of our sites. So definitely check out all the better collective sites. There's going to be some fun stuff up there. Absolutely. All right. Thanks again, Mark. Great talking to you. Great talking to you, gentlemen. Have a good day. All right. Good luck to both of you, although uh, pardon me if I root for the bloody draw, as they used to say in boxing. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. We'll get to the fast five shortly, but first let's update our betting bankroll and let's start coming off our discussion with Mark with a wrap up of our MLB futures that have been graded. Uh, we do still have MVP bets and Cy Young bets that aren't graded yet, although we are poised to finish slightly ahead on those if they go as we expect. Uh, but here's what we know. Joey Gallo, under 41 and a half homers, was the easiest win in the history of our bankroll. Uh, I bet $250 on that to return $450, so a nice $200 profit for us. Your NL Central bets didn't go so well, John, as you had the Brewers to win the division, which lost $150, and the Cardinals under 84 and a half wins, which cost us another $110. Uh, but my midseason bet on the Guardians to win the AL Central at plus 300 delivered for a profit of $150. So add those all up, and we won $90. We also did well with last week's bets. Uh, you split your college football bets, winning $100 on the Baylor-Oklahoma State over and losing 110 on Oklahoma minus six and a half. But I was in the zone on my NFL bets, uh, hitting the under in Bengals-Dolphins for $100, the Jags plus three and a half in the second half for $50, and the Titans money line as small underdogs for $77. Put it all together and we won $307 on the week when you count the baseball futures. 
flipping us back to the good side of the minus 3K line at $2,931 below our starting stack. We have $765 on Holden Futures bets, leaving us with $6,304 available to bet with this week. And you're up first, John. Uh, yeah, I mean, on the one hand, uh, I think the Brewers were three games up on the Cardinals at the trade deadline end of July. Um, and then they made a stupid trade and the Yankees made a stupid trade with the Cardinals. Um, that being said, in retrospect, it's idiotic to bet the Brewers to win a division and the Cardinals under 84.5 wins, I think, given that the point of picking the Brewers was that they're three terrible teams. And I was right about that. And but then why are the Cardinals going under? Somebody has to win those games. So, <laughs> right. so it, the logic was so stupid that I deserved to lose both. So at, at the least, trades killed me, but I can live with it. Well, at least you uh, you ultimately semi hedged it with the Goldschmidt MVP bet, which will <laughs> yeah. be grading as a win probably soon. So yeah, I think so. All right, so I'm going to go again with our colleagues at the Action Network on an interesting trend. Now, whether a team keeps covering or not against quarterbacks with an O in their name, yeah, that's fun, <laughs> but it's a total coincidence. But Alabama under Coach Nick Saban is 11 and four against the point spread in games against a team that beat them the previous year. I don't see that as a coincidence. As a double-digit favorite, they're 6-0 and with an average cover of two scores. They've given up seven total points in the fourth quarter of those six games. Talk about, you know, stepping on the, uh, the, the accelerator and never letting up. I think that's what's going on here. So give me the tie at 165 to win 150, even though I'm giving 24 points to doom Texas A&M. All right. Big bet there. Um, the NBA season is almost here, and I haven't taken a close look yet at Team Futures odds that I like, but there is one unusual prop bet offered that caught my eye. DraftKings set a line of 43 and a half games out of 82 for Kevin Durant, Kyrie Irving, and Ben Simmons to play in together. I love the under. There are so many ways this can go under. Any of them suffers a significant injury by the middle of the season, it's an under. Simmons has had recurring back issues. He could miss time with that. And he says he's been dealing with mental health issues. That's more or less why he sat out all last season. That could factor in. Kyrie is wildly unpredictable. Uh, vaccination shouldn't be an issue this season, but he misses games and disappears for assorted reasons all the time. The last five seasons, he has played 29, 54, 20, 67, and 60 games. And Durant's injury history is becoming significant. Plus, let's not forget, he wanted to be traded all offseason. So what if one of these guys manages to get himself traded at midseason? Uh, I love the under here, and I love the fact that the under cost minus 130 a few days ago. But now that Simmons has suited up for a preseason game, people must have been betting the over. So I'm seeing now we can get a standard minus 110 on the under. So let's bet, same bet that you just made, 165 to win 150, that Brooklyn's big three plays under 43 and a half regular season games together. I'm glad you have so many outs there because I wouldn't want you to root for another outbreak of COVID uh, to carry <laughs> this bet. That would be morally reprehensible, but I, I, there's so I many draw, other ways to go. Yeah. yeah, I draw the line there. I'm not rooting for COVID. Okay, that's good. Now, with my other college football pick, I'm rolling with a different SEC tide. The Army of Betters who are all over Mississippi State against Arkansas. Uh, and so I'll go 110 to win 100 at minus nine and a half points. This thing is jumping. Uh, the favorites will grab a nice early lead in the air, and the Razorbacks don't have an explosive enough running game to fight back. So I'm not thrilled about giving an extra three or four points, but I think, I think in this case the, uh, the tide is, uh, is high and, and winning. Okay. Uh, so I bragged on last week's pod about how good my money line underdog pick of the week in my line it up column has done. Uh, I've now won that three weeks in a row with the Jags in weeks two and three and the Titans last week. This week in the column, I said the best underdog money line value was on the Bengals to win in Baltimore. They're evenly matched teams. The Ravens haven't had a home field advantage so far this season. When I wrote the column, the best price on Cincy was plus 158. It has come down a tiny bit. Now it's plus 151. Close enough. I still like the value there. So I'm betting $70 to win 106 that the Bengals win outright. And we finished the show with the Fast Five, where the role reversal from 2021 continued full speed ahead. I won our lone head-to-head -head with the Giants covering against the Bears. Uh, I won comfortably with Dallas and Tennessee and eked one out by being on the right side of the hook with the Vikings in London. My only loss was on the Lions as I went 4-1 and one to improve to 12-8 and eight three wins ahead of where I was at this stage last season. John, meanwhile, got off to a good start with the Bengals on Thursday and a good finish with the Raiders late Sunday. But in between, 
He lost with the Bears, Steelers, and Jags to go two and three on the week and drop to eight and 12 overall, three wins behind where he was at this point last season. Funny game, this sports gambling, uh, but there is still a lot of season left to go, and you're up first for week five, John. All right. Yeah, I'm a soldier on here. Um, going back to the Thursday night game again, I see the Colts getting a tasty three and a half points against the bumbling Broncos. His running back Jonathan Taylor is out for this game. Well, Denver has his own key injuries, and they're stuck with that clueless head coach. So I grabbed the points in an unwatchable game. Uh, also give me Seattle plus five and a half points against the Saints, who don't really scare anybody. An outright win here would not be a shock, and I'm not sure this one's going to be a barn burner either. Um, next, give me the Falcons plus eight and a half against the Buccaneers. No Tom Brady love life jokes here, but Bucks offense isn't consistent enough to merit this margin, I don't think. And finally, the second straight week of a trap line against the Commanders. I ignored it last week and failed to reap the benefits as you did. This time, I take the Titans somehow only giving two and a half points against the Durs as my lone favorite. Uh, actually, I actually have one more. Uh, yeah, my last dog is the Lions getting three from the Patriots. And this may tell us that the Lions can get into a point shootout with every single team in the league. All right. So uh, you've got four underdogs, one favorite. Yeah. And once again, we've avoided four of four of the games. But <laughs> this time we are actually in agreement on one pick okay. rather than head to head. So I, I really struggled more this week to find five I like yeah. than I have in previous weeks this season. There were just a few where the Superbook lines were like a half point away from the number that I wanted. Uh, so anyway, these are the five best I could come up with. And I'll start with the one we agree on. When the season began, I kind of believed in the New Orleans Saints, but I've done a 180. I don't think they're good, and all the injuries aren't helping, and Seattle is less putrid than advertised. So to me, five and a half points is a point or two too many. Uh, I like the road underdog to keep it a little closer than that. So give me surprisingly competent Geno Smith and the Seahawks plus five and a half. My next pick is also a road dog where the number just feels a tiny bit high. I'll take the Texans getting seven in Jacksonville. Uh, you know that I've been a pretty big Jags believer all season, and I still am, but divisional game, the Texans are bad, but they tend to be in these games before falling short. They're still winless, and they're going to see this as one of their best opportunities to get off the schneid. And the Jags, as talented as they are, they're young, and they're, they're learning, and they're prone to mistakes. So I like all those points I'm getting with Houston. Now I will swing wildly from a bad team getting points on the road to the biggest favorite out there, the Bills, giving 14 to the Steelers. This sets up as a total blowout to me. Kenny Pickett making his first start against that Bills defense. Buffalo kind of needing to lay the smackdown on someone after a couple of shaky games. I expect this to get ugly quickly, and I think the Bills can take such a big lead that I don't even have to sweat the backdoor cover. Along similar lines, I'll take the Vikings minus seven at home against the Bears. This is not a primetime game, so it's acceptable to bet on Kirk Cousins. And the Bears are a total disaster. Got to be the worst two and two team of my lifetime. I don't see how this is a close game in the Dome in Minnesota. And lastly, when the lines opened, the 49ers were favored by four and a half in Carolina. Then the Niners looked great against the Rams on Monday. And now Superbook is giving Carolina six and a half. And I love that from the Panthers side. The Panthers have a whole lot of problems, uh, which I am enjoying because we have the Baker Mayfield under on passing yards, which is comfortably on pace to win. But the Niners on a short week off a big win going West Coast to East Coast. It's such a clear letdown spot at four and a half. The original line, I probably would have stayed away. But at six and a half with the Panthers, I have to take the home dog to cover. And that will do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Mark Saxon. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on Megaphone, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else. And with that, John, please take us out. Yeah, I just want to say a word of thanks actually to the nfl and amazon prime for that decision to move the weekly thursday night game there i don't have an amazon pride i'm not going to get it and rationally or not it just felt like a hostile maneuver to me i was kind of offended by it so well once i stopped watching that game it led me to punt a couple of late afternoon window eastern time zone games too because there's only like three games and they weren't that exciting anyway and that was followed by passing on one sunday night game and this week i skipped the monday night game too so i mean the nfl is a great product we all know that and it's very easy to get time sucked into 17 or 18 hours of football out of what maybe 112 hours of awake time for a week i mean that's just too much so now i feel like i have regain an equilibrium you know by skipping those games at least in some weeks i'll probably even wager a little less money than i usually do so thanks again amazon and nfl 
And with that, until next time, gamble on. 